And um, as we begin, if you're turning there and we get prepared to begin, um, let, let's open uh, with prayer and just pray that God would open our hearts and minds to, uh, um, to his word. So let's pray. Lord, you taught us to pray our Father. What an amazing privilege it is to say our Father. What a privilege it is to be called the children of God, born not of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but by the will of God, adopted and made heirs the Lord of the universe. Father, we're grateful that you have made us your own, sons and daughters from every tribe and tongue and nation. And together this day, Lord God, we join with other churches and the believing community around the world to celebrate your goodness and mercy. And we thank you this day, Lord God. I pray that you would, you would guide our hearts and minds, Lord. We we lift up various uh, needs to you this day. I do pray for our mission trip. Pray that that goes well. I, uh, I thank you, Lord God, for, for that. I, I pray, Father God, we rejoice. I believe that uh, Pastor Coates up in Canada has been released from prison for holding church services in the midst of COVID because he would not bow to the ungodly demands of the state. And so I believe he's been released and I pray, Lord God, that you would uh, um, resolve this case and bring grace, Lord God, to that community. We thank you and praise you this day, Lord God. We pray for brothers and sisters around the world who suffer for the cause of Christ for their testimony and their love, Lord God. We pray that they would not hate those who have imprisoned them, who persecute them, who harm their families. Pray, Lord God, that they would stand strong and never back down. Help us, Lord God, in the shifting climate in which we are living, Lord God, as we transition from to a whole different worldview than we are probably accustomed to. And the transitions are difficult, so help us, Lord God, to, um, to be faithful to your word. And that we would understand your word, not understand it as through a cultural lens, but through the, the spirit of God. So guide us this day, Lord God. Protect us from the evil one. Help us to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Well, one of the things that God has blessed me with over the past many, many, many years, I've had great opportunity to do a lot of hiking and backpacking and lots of bicycling and um, off-road, on-road in some pretty crazy places. And in those opportunities to get into the backcountry, um, Snake encounters are not uncommon. I've seen my fair share of snakes. There was a time, every time I went to the Grand Canyon, every time, man, I, snakes were everywhere. So, and they love, down at the bottom of the canyon, they love to sit up on rocks that are about that high, right by the trail, and just kind of thigh high. They have pink rattlesnakes down there, as a matter of fact. So, yeah. Yeah, they're pink. They're awesome. And uh, from a distance. And uh, the, the, the problem with, with, with seeing snakes, whether, in, and I used to live in Ahwatukee, or I used to work in Ahwatukee, and we'd, we would ride every, every day in the spring and summer after work, and man, the snakes are out. The problem with seeing snakes on a bike ride or a hike is after that, everything's a snake. Every shadow, every stick, every noise, everything is a snake. And so you're just walking or riding scared the whole time. Well, 
Fortunately, I have never been bit. But from a spiritual perspective, however, we've all been bitten. We've all been bitten by that serpent of old, the deceptive one who has and has plunged as a result of being bitten by that serpent of old, humankind has been plunged into a state of corruption. And I don't think we see it any more clear than we do than in the book of Numbers. And so today we are going to look at um, a passage of text that I think has incredible meaning and is really, really powerful. Let me just give you a setting before I, I give a preview of where we're going. But the setting of our text today in chapter 21 is... Recall that the people of Israel have now been in the wilderness for 40 years. Right? We're at the end of the 40 years. It's interesting, don't you think, or it's somewhat baffling a bit, how the book of Numbers pretty much jumps and almost skips about 38 years um, or so, scholars debate. But it basically jumps from the, the early years of the wilderness wanderings all the way to year number 40. And we know we're in year 40 because Aaron died in the 40th year, and we saw last week the death of Aaron. And so that old generation has died off. The first generation has died off. Miriam died. Um, Aaron died. Moses is going to uh, continue, but he doesn't have much longer left in, in his life. And so the the, the, that original first generation has died off, that younger generation who was told that they would enter into the promised land, they are pretty much now the generation that we are dealing with. So we're at the end of this 40-year journey. The Bible is... It is a historical book... But like all histories, it has a very narrow um, focus. It is not focused on the entire history of the Jewish people. Its purpose is not to detail everything there is to know about Israel's history. The Bible is a book of redemptive history. It is a book of redemptive history. And so therefore, what God inspired the authors to include... Uh, are um, events that add to and contribute to our understanding of how God brings about the redemption of his people, how, how mankind fell and God makes a promise to bring forth a Savior and how through history God brought about the person of Jesus Christ and how in the future God will bring about his final consummation in his son and bring about a new heaven and new earth. That is the focus of history. And so the fact that the book of Numbers jumps some 38 years or so um, makes sense. God is interested in providing for us redemptive history. So that's kind of the setting as we enter into to Numbers today. I, I want to give you a little bit of a preview of where our, 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 our message is going to go today. The, the, the preview today is we're going to cover really two events. There are two events. And the first event is the destruction of Canaanite cities. Um, and we're going to deal with some of the complexities and difficulties that surround the destruction of these Canaanite cities. The second issue that we will deal with, and I think very, very significant, is this plague of poisonous snakes. Now, this is probably one of the more common or well-known um, events in the book of Numbers is this plague of poisonous snakes. And so those are going to be our two events. What I hope to do is not only um, help you understand these events as they occurred in history. They are historical events. They really did happen. Um, but I also want us to understand how they are understood by the rest of Scripture. Because remember, um, and the way we understand and teach the Scripture is that there is a continuity of Scripture, that the Bible is a continuous story. So we not only want to know what happened in these events, but we also want to understand how do they fit 
into the big story of Scripture? How do they contribute to the overall story that is being told to us in the Bible? And so the Bible is one big story. Some people have said it is a a meta-narrative. It is a grand story. And then each of those books, each of the books of the Bible contribute a chapter, if you will, to that grand story. And while our text today stands alone, I don't want us to think that it is isolated from the overall picture of um, of God's redemptive plan in history. And so um, one of the things I want to do is not only explain and help you understand, help us all understand these two events, but also then how they fit into the overarching narrative of the entire Bible. So that's where we're going to go today. We're going to look at these two events and also hopefully see how they fit into this overarching story. So, if you will, we only have nine verses today. So if you will, follow along with me as we look into Numbers chapter 21, verses 1 through 9. Listen to the word of God. When the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming by the way of Atharim, he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. And Israel vowed a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give this people into my hand, then I will devote their cities to destruction. And the Lord heeded the voice of Israel and gave over the Canaanites, and they devoted them and their cities to destruction. So the name of the place was called Hormah. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. And so Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. And this ends the reading of God's inerrant word. And so we begin with this place called Hormah. The place was called Hormah. Now, I put a map up here, and hopefully you can, can see it. And um, that red line that you see is the travels that um, Israel took to get into the promised land. And um, let me see if I can get this. This uh, screen has a bit of a reflection when I use this, but up here... Um, can you see the green dot up there? Not the one on the ceiling. It's reflecting. There's one on the ceiling, but that's not what we're talking about. Right here, this is uh, um, Kadesh Barnea, and this is where the people are camped. Arad is up in here, we think. Um, and then Horma. the people of Israel eventually travel down south and come up this eastern side. Anyways, this is where all of the action's taking place. So that's where our action is taking place. And um, they are in the southern, this is the southern border of Canaan. It is called the Negev. You should probably know that term if you read the Bible. It just simply means the southern desert. So the southern desert of the land of Canaan is this Canaanite king. More likely he's more of a warlord type thing, or perhaps maybe not a warlord, but um, a, a chieftain over a, a number of different cities in this area. And it appears that he... Um, puts forth a preemptive strike against Israel. Israel, remember, 40 years earlier had tried to enter in the same direction. They went from Kadesh Barnea. 12 spies went in to spy out the land. It didn't go so well, um, certainly. Um, and then they actually tried to, uh, uh, to enter in on their own ability, and the Canaanites chased them away. And so certainly now uh, the, the chieftain or the king of these of Arad, um, has these uh, this couple million people sitting at their borders, and they take it as a serious threat. 
and they come against Israel, attack them, and take some people captives. All right, so this is what's going on. And the people of Israel then pray to the Lord, and they make this vow. They make a vow, a vow to the the Lord, that if you will allow us to have victory over um, these Canaanite cities, then we will devote them to destruction. Here's what that means. It means just what it says. Utter annihilation. Burning everything. Everything is consumed. And everyone. That's what it means. So they are devoted to destruction. Israel sought the Lord. They vowed destruction of their cities. The Lord gave over the Canaanites. And uh, a couple, couple of things here. First of all, this is, I believe, a preview, if you will, a, the first fruits of what is going to happen when Israel eventually enters into the promised land. Because you'll recall, when they went into Jericho, the first town they conquered, it was turned over completely to destruction. In fact, the warning is nobody shall rebuild Jericho. So this is a a preview of uh, God's judgment on the Canaanites. So I guess we can just move along, but ultimately this idea of uh, utter destruction In the Hebrew, it's harem. And it is an offense to modern sensibilities. Well, maybe not even offensive to modern sensibilities. It is an offensive thought. Utter destruction. So let me uh, give some thoughts on that idea of utter destruction. My goal is not to defend God. He does not need me to defend him. But I think we do need to look at this from a biblical perspective. So let me go back and deal with some really basic presuppositions. First of all, number one, this is God's world. This is God's world. Everything in it is God's. Every inch, every molecule of the universe is God's. It is his world. We live in it. He has graced us with his kindness to live in his world. We are accountable to the God who made us. And in this destruction of the Canaanite cities, we witness both the kindness and the severity of God. And you're going, you must be crazy. How in the world do you see the kindness of God in utter destruction? Certainly there's severity, but what about kindness? I will describe the kindness of God we see here in God's world. The people of the Canaanite cities have experienced at least 400 years of God's common grace. What I mean by common grace is that God, we see this in the New Testament, God's reign falls on the just and the unjust. God blesses even unbelievers, even rebels against him. And the Canaanite cities have experienced well over 400 years of his common grace. Their crops have grown. Their children have been born and survived. And their cattle give birth. And they fall in love. And they enjoy one another's company. And they laugh together. And they enjoy the wonder and the beauty of the night sky and all the stars that fill it. And they uh, have enjoyed all of the kindness of God's common grace and every wonderful event they see marriages and they rejoice in those things i don't know if they celebrated birthdays but if they did they celebrated in those things they they saw the crops rise up and they fed their they fed themselves um, all of this by god's kind provision 
And yet, in spite of all of God's great mercies and kindness and grace, they, because of the hardness of their heart and the rebellion of their ways, they worship the creature and not the creator. And they become inventors of evil. And we see this in the book of Romans, how the things of God are made known. They are clear. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth because what can be known about God is plain to them because God has made it known. They, They see His invisible attributes, His eternal power, His divine nature. They've been clearly seen ever since the creation of the world. And even though they knew God, they did not honor God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And then there's a whole list of abominations against God that these people have created. And one of the most uh, ones that stands out, they are inventors of evil. They find new ways to do evil. God has displayed nothing but grace and kindness to them, and they find new ways. To mock God. And so we see the kindness in God in that he bestows his common grace upon them. And then we see the severity of God after 400 years of God's making himself manifestly known to these people and them continually shaking their fist at a holy God and worshiping images, not just worshiping images. Canaanite religion was utterly and completely perverse and violent. They murdered their children. They sacrificed their children to the gods of their age. They kidnapped, raped conquered, destroyed, violent people in violent means. And they commit the untold atrocities. Sometimes we have this myth in our minds of the noble savages. These are just peace-loving people just growing their crops. Are you kidding me? They literally burn their children alive to please and appease their gods. They kidnap people from other tribes and enslave them, murder them at will. And the severity of God is we live in God's world and he will judge those who violate his good and righteous principles. And here he uses the nation of Israel as his means of judgment. God can use all sorts of different means of judgment. In just a bit, we're going to see a different means of judgment. But here, it is not uncommon for God to use a foreign army to bring judgment against a people. In fact, we're going, if you read much in the Bible, you're going to see that Israel itself was judged by God by foreign armies. Foreign armies, pagan armies, rose up and came into Israel and took them captive. It's one of the great, uh, one of my favorite passages of text where Habakkuk is praying to the Lord saying, do you see how wicked your people are? Aren't you going to do something? And God says, yeah, I'm going to raise up the Assyrians and I'm going to bring them in. Wait, wait, you can't do that. Don't you know how bad the, the, I'm sorry, the Babylonians, don't you know how bad the Babylonians are? We're not that bad. You can't use them. God's like, yep, I'm going to raise up the Babylonians. They will be my rod of judgment against my very own people. God raises up nations to judge his rebellion to judge other rebellious nations. That is not uncommon. See it all the way through scriptures. And make no mistake, God is no respecter of persons. In fact, when his own people, Israel, commit these same atrocities, 
He raises up armies and he destroys them. He judges them as well. You should note this is not a, a this is not an ethnic cleansing. This is a moral issue. In fact, Psalm chapter 106, listen to uh, Psalm 106. This is what God does even to Israel when they rebel. Psalm 106, verses 34 through 43. Speaking of Israel, they did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons, literally burned them alive. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and their daughters whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts, and they played the whore in their deeds. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his heritage. He gave them into the hand of the nations so that those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them, and they were brought into subjection under their own power. Many times he delivered them. But they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity. God judges foreign nations and he judges his own nations, his own people. It is an issue of eventually the people fill up the cup of God's wrath and he pours it out on people. Let me also note this that God never rejects the repentant. Let me give you a little bit of hope. I know that was some pretty bleak material. Let me lighten it up a bit with another truth. And that truth is God never rejects the repentant. And our great example there is Rahab. Rahab, when they come into, when the Israelites come into the promised land and they come into Jericho, Rahab, Desires become part of that covenant community. And it's really interesting what Rahab says. It just strikes me so profoundly. She said, listen, we know about you. We know about your God. We know about how you have defeated the Egyptians. We know how you plundered the Egyptians 40 years ago. We know how you have conquered the Amalekites in the wilderness. Not only do we in Jericho, in kind of the southern, central southern part of Canaan know this, but everybody all the way up to the northern part know about you and your God. We've seen how you defeated Sihon and Og, which we'll talk about next week, how you've defeated these great kingdoms of Sihon and Og. We know that your God is powerful. We know that he is just. We know that who he is, and we know who you are. And so she says, I want to become part of your community. And they brought her in, spared her life, and not only did she become part of the uh, community of Israel, she becomes, by God's gracious mercy, through her came Christ our Lord. Anybody who was in, Jer- was in those towns had repented of their sins. They would have been spared like Rahab. But they shook their fist at God. So that's rather bleak. But let me share with you that God does not reject the repentant. And we see plenty of evidence there. Well, that's our material there on um, the destruction of the Canaanite cities. We now get to this account of these snakes. And so I've called this part Look and Live. And it's really prompted, um, it's really prompted by the Israelites grumbling. Imagine that. Despite God's great provision, his favored provision, the people grow weary. And they, 
they take this circuitous route and the people become impatient on the way. And here's what it says. They spoke against God and against Moses. I guess because Aaron's dead, they can't speak against Aaron and Moses. So we'll just complain about God. Not to God, but about God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die? It's been 40 years, and they're still making that same complaint. Why have you brought us out here to die? There's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Places in the scripture call this the bread of heaven. We loathe your provision that you've given to us every day. We loathe the bread of heaven. Well, God responds. And God responds with snakes. Man, I can't think of a whole lot of things more frightening than being plagued with snakes. And now God uses nature as his rod um, of discipline. He used his Israel as a rod of chastisement against the king, the Canaanite king, and now he's using a natural means. God uses all sorts of means to get our attention. He has used in the past Sodom and Gomorrah, fire and brimstone from heaven. Yeah, they're, they're something pretty big. Uses natural armies, and here he's using snakes. But I want to make sure that we understand that his just chastisement of his people is not just mere punishment, but it is a call back. When God disciplines his people, the book of Hebrews says, don't don't speak harshly against God's chastisement of his people. He's calling us back. It is there for a purpose. And the snakes have a purpose to call the people away from their grumbling, sinful attitudes against a holy God who has been good to them and bring them to the realization and to bring them to a place of repentance. The snakes aren't just there for some mere punishment. The snakes are there to call people back. And we should be aware that God often uses uncomfortable and difficult situations to bring his people back to a place of repentance. And now we actually see that Israel does something really, really good. We should celebrate when Israel does something good in the book of Numbers because it doesn't happen that often. And so they get snakes. And the snakes are a callback to call them back to, to God. And Israel responds appropriately by repenting. They came to Moses and said, we have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents. And so God does. They repent. Moses asks the Lord to, um, what do I do? And God responds and he gives them a remedy. And the remedy was that you are to um, take, make a bronze serpent, put it up on a pole, and everybody who looks upon that serpent will live. So these fiery serpents, by the way, they're, they're not like flaming. Hebrew doesn't have a word for, for poisonous. They're poisonous snakes. That's what they are. And, and it, talk, it deals with the burning that you would feel when you got bit by one. So these aren't like flaming snakes. Um, they're poisonous snakes. And... We kind of, some folks who have talked about the area that people believe that Israel was in, the, the region they were in at the time, um, even like Lawrence of Arabia has talked, been in this area, and he's going, man, the snakes there are so, so numerous. I mean, even my, uh, my guides and people, we, they were afraid to move. There were so many snakes. So, this is God's, um, response to their complaining against him and against Moses, it functioned well because it brought them to a place of repentance. And as they come to a place of repentance, God then provides the remedy. Verse 
the bronze serpent, and whoever looks upon it will live. Well, what I want to do now is just maybe draw some, see some gospel connections and perhaps some, some applications here because no doubt about it, this account has troubled and puzzled biblical scholars uh, and just sent them into fits, not knowing what to do with why a serpent, why just seems so unlikely of a remedy. Well, I'm not going to attempt to answer that. I'll, as John Calvin said, I'll speak where the Bible speaks and I'll be silent where the Bible is silent. So let's just speak where the Bible speaks. And probably the place we need to go is into John chapter 3. So uh, if you have your Bibles, and you should have a Bible, it's church. It can be on your phone if you like it to be, or it can be like a real physical thing, or we have one in your pew back. But John chapter 3, if you will look here, um, this account doesn't trouble me because I have um, a New Testament interpretation of it. And not only do we have a New Testament understanding of uh, Numbers chapter 21, we have Jesus giving us the lesson. So this is pretty authoritative. Jesus takes the events of Numbers chapter 21 and he applies it to himself. Jesus takes the events of chapter 21 in Numbers and he applies it to himself Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus said, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, and everybody who looked upon the serpent that that was lifted up in the wilderness lived, so... Just like that, the Son of Man, me, Jesus is speaking, must be lifted up everywhere. That word lifted up in the New Testament is to be crucified. Even so, so just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, and if you looked upon the serpent in faith, you would live. Even so, the Son of Man must be lifted up, and whoever will believe upon him will live. Jesus takes this kind of, odd event from Numbers chapter 21 and says that's all about me. And so just as all who looked upon the serpent in faith were saved so all who look upon Christ crucified will live. Faith in the crucified Christ brings salvation. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God loved the world in this way that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but but in order that the world might be saved through through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. We'd all love John 3.16. It may be one of the greatest passages of text in all of Scripture. But you cannot separate John 3.16 from Numbers chapter 21. They are intimately connected. Jesus applies this to himself. He says that just as those who lifted us, as Moses lifted up the serpent on the wilderness, and you looked upon it in faith, you would live even so. The Son of Man would be lifted up, and you would live because God loved the world. How did God love the world, you might ask? In what way? Here's the way. He gave his one and only Son, that if you would believe in him, you would not perish but have eternal life. You've all been bitten by that serpent of old, every single one of us. We are all corrupt and fallen in our being, in our nature. We are by nature children of wrath. Is there a remedy? Yes, there is. It is in the crucified Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. There it is. John chapter 3, 
is the fulfillment of Numbers chapter 21. So let me draw a few observations from this text. The first one, I want to talk a little bit about this bronze serpent. The first thing I I want to deal with is the bronze serpent is foolish. This is what's baffled people. It's like, that doesn't make sense. Are you telling me you just look and you believe and you'll be healed? Yeah, that's what I'm telling you. On its face, the remedy of a bronze serpent is foolish, and yet it is God's means to bring healing from the serpent's venom. And the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. For the word of the cross, Paul writes, is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of of God. It seems foolish. I mean, I, I can imagine Moses in his tent. Somebody comes running in, Moses, man, we got a problem. There's snakes, poisonous snakes. They're everywhere. They're biting people and they're dying. What are we going to do? Got an answer for you. Yeah, good. What's the answer? Got poison? Building up a barrier? What are we going to do? I'm going to fashion a bronze snake. Oh, okay. I'm going to put it on a pole. And if you look on that bronze snake, you will live. Moses, that's the most foolish idea. You need to have some sort of poison. You need a barrier, something. But a bronze snake on a pole is a stupid idea. Except it is from God Almighty. And a crucified Savior is foolishness to those who are perishing. But it is the gospel that saves. It is the gospel, this foolishness of preaching that saves men from their sins. Is it foolishness? Perhaps. I guess God could have chosen a different way, but he didn't. And so it is through the foolishness of preaching that men and women are saved. That's the first observation. The second observation is this. It is exclusive. There was no other way. You either looked upon the bronze serpent or you died. You could say, I'm not looking. That's a stupid answer. I can't believe God would do something so stupid like that. Give me something really meaningful. Let me sacrifice something. I'll kill something. God said, that's not the remedy. The remedy is look and live. And in our salvation, there is no human remedy to sin. You cannot say, well, I'll just reform myself. I'll become a better person. I'll become a nicer person. I'll become a kinder person, a more patient person. Great, you should. I encourage us all to become kinder, nicer, more patient, more tolerant, all of those things. But if you think it will merit anything in regards to salvation, you are sorely mistaken. There is one way of salvation, and it is Christ being lifted up at Calvary on the cross. That's it. There is no other way. You can say, well, I think that's foolish. And yet, it is the divinely required way for a person to be saved. You do not get to make up your own way. Just as Moses didn't get to make up his own way, say, well, that sounds kind of stupid. I mean, a snake on a stick. Come on. This is the divinely inspired way that it's going to happen. So it is foolishness. It's through the foolishness of the gospel, and there is no other way, but it is also sufficient. In other words, if you looked upon the serpent, you would live. Nothing else was needed. You didn't need to look on the serpent and then, I don't know, do a serpent dance or something. And so it is with Christ. Whoever... The work of Christ is sufficient. It is finished. On the cross, he said, it is finished. It is not grace plus works. Many, many, many religions will teach you, you are saved by grace after all you do. Do the best you can do, and then whatever merit you lack, grace will make up the difference. Folks, It is all grace. It is all grace. 
and the work of Christ is sufficient. This is why I struggle so, so much with the doctrine of purgatory because it is saying that after I die, I have to pay the penalty of my sin in the fires of purgatory, that the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice is not enough to pay the penalty of my sin. That's an abominable thought. Abominable. I'd encourage you, if you hold to that teaching, look at Scripture. My goal isn't to offend or to hurt or to isolate But look at what the Bible says. Christ's sacrifice is sufficient. It is also extensive. That is, all who looked on the cross, not the leaders in Israel, not the chieftains, not the tribal leaders, not just the children, all who looked upon the serpent lived. It is extensive, and so it is with Christ. Whoever would believe will not perish, for God loved the world in this way, that he gave his one and only Son, that the believing ones will not perish. And I don't care where you come from or where you've been. It is for you. And in the climate of our day, that seems to be so, we are becoming more and more and more racially divided. I am telling you right now that the lack of melatonin or the increase of melatonin in your body has no bearing on your standing with Christ. It is sufficient for all. And in this day and age where A white person such as myself is more and more seen as being um, satanic and of the devil and of no value. I'm letting you know that my lack of melanin will never, ever separate me from the love of Christ. And your increase and abundance of it has nothing to do. All who look upon Christ will be saved from every tribe and tongue and nation and people. Everyone who looks upon Christ in faith will be saved. It's just the way it is. And finally, it's efficacious. What I mean by that is it works. It has an effect. All who looked on the serpent were actually healed, not potentially healed, not to be healed at a later date, but actually really and truly healed. And all who look upon Christ are really and truly saved. Really, as a matter of fact, saved. It is efficacious. His substitutionary substitutionary death works. In other words, it accomplishes what it intended to accomplish. It actually saves people from their sins. It does not potentially save people from their sins. Maybe sometime at a later date, you might get saved. No, it actually, literally, efficaciously saves people from their sins. And so we see the bronze serpent in relation to the Christ, that it is, it seems, the cross seems foolish, but it is the means by which people are saved. It is exclusive. There is no other way. It is sufficient. You don't need to do anything else. Christ's work is sufficient. It is extensive. Whoever will come, whoever will believe, I don't care who you are or where you come from, If you look upon Christ, you will be saved. And it is efficacious in that it accomplishes what he set out to accomplish. This is what we find from Numbers chapter 21. Let me bring up another thing that really grieved me as I read this. Or it struck home with me, I should say. And how they grew weary of this food. They... They said that it is worthless food. As I said, throughout the scripture, this manna was called bread from heaven and they grew weary of the bread from heaven. And I just, I had to ask myself this and I'm going to ask you the same question because Jesus applies this to himself. John chapter 8, 
verse 32. Jesus applies this to himself. John chapter 8, verse 32. Maybe it's six thirty two. Go to chapter six, verse thirty two. I'll start with verse thirty one. Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives his life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. I'm going to jump forward to verse 47. Jesus said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever and the bread that I give will for the life of the world is my flesh. I, Jesus said, am the bread that comes down out of heaven. And I just had to ask myself this question. I'll ask you this question as well. Have we grown weary of the bread that comes down from heaven? Have we grown weary of Christ? Have we become bored with the gospel? Foolishly believing that we need something exciting or innovative or creative? I pray that we never lose awe of the redeeming work of Christ. And that as we gather together and we we talk about the gospel, we never think there's this idea that we need to move on from the gospel. That, you know, that's like the basics. No, the, the gospel is Christianity. It's not the basics of Christianity. It is Christianity. And we gather together to, and, and we proclaim the gospel because, I don't know, I need it. I need it every week. I fear the day I'm weary of it. Oh, I'm just going to hear about Christ dying for my sins, being buried and being raised again on the third day. Because I've sinned this week. And I'll bet you have too. You need the gospel. You need to know that Jesus gave his life for your sins and that it was sufficient. It's still good today. The blood that he shed for your sins doesn't count just on the day that you repented of your sins and entered into the the kingdom of Christ. It's good today. It's still sufficient. It doesn't wane. It doesn't lose its power. I pray we never become bored with the gospel. I pray that that is our essence. And then finally, I want to come back and look at this, this, this Canaanite chieftain, Arid or a chieftain of Arid. This is certainly a sobering type of a future reality. There will come a time when mankind will have filled up the cup of God's wrath and Christ will come to judge the living and the dead. If you think the utter destruction of these Canaanite series, cities was something, let me refer you back to Genesis 6. When God dealt with the entire world. Let me point you forward to Revelation 19. The time of his common grace will reach its end and utter complete destruction will be the just judgment for God. Why? Well, I can't speak for everybody. I just, I, I'm sorry. I look at this nation and we shed innocent blood. We sacrifice our sons and daughters to demons. We are idolaters. We're inventors of evil. Tell me, tell me, that God will not judge the living and the dead. Right now, we are experiencing God's common grace, and we should be grateful for that. Everybody here in this building and many who are listening online, we are perhaps the wealthiest, most privileged nation and generation that has ever, ever lived. I think I saw somebody post something recently 
it's amazing that a kid who wears $200 sneakers typing on a $1,000 phone drinking an $8 cup of coffee is talking about how oppressed he is. Please. I saw something from Madonna, yeah, she's still around, talking about smashing the patriarchy. Really, you're worth $800 million. I don't really want to hear it. You are not an oppressed woman. But we've shed innocent blood. We are enslaving people. This, this murderous rampage in Atlanta, without getting into all of the details, but I just wonder how many of those girls are slaves. How many of those young women, not only those that, that survived, are trafficked. I would guarantee probably the majority, if not all of them, are trafficked. They are slaves. I'm not here to say that this guy's murderous rampage was good or anything like that or just any, any of that. Horrible, horrible, horrible crime. But many things are taking place there. And one of the things is human trafficking, and we just like, oh, I get cheap labor, so I'm good. And it's just not in that field. We see domestic trafficking. People literally become domestic housekeepers, and they are literally enslaved. We live in a great country, but do not think for a moment that we have escaped the notice of God's justice. And we have experienced his common grace, every single one of us. We sit on comfortable pews. But we have shed innocent blood. We have despised those created in God's image. We have invented new ways to flaunt our autonomy. And Christ will come to judge the living and the dead, not just this nation, but the entire world will see him coming on the clouds of glory. And they will cry out that the rocks fall on them to hide them from the, from the face of him who sits on the throne. Arid, the Canaanite cities, teach us about this. God, has, however, has dealt with us in accordance with his kindness, but that will end. And when it does, my question then is, what will you do? What will you do? I'll tell you the remedy. That whoever believes in him, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. There's the remedy. There's the issue. And I would just encourage you today, um, as I get ready to conclude here, let me just remind you that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it is true that the wages of sin is death, but it is also equally true that the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ our Lord. So what shall you do? If you are here this day and you've never called upon the name of the Lord, you've never repented of your sins, um, but right now the Holy Spirit is convicting you of your sin. If you're here today, I want to talk to you after the church service. We need to talk about what this is. If you're online and you're viewing this, man, reach out to me. Just message me. There's... Facebook Messenger, just hit it now and go and say, man, we need to, I need to talk about what it means to be a follower of Christ. I want to look upon Christ lifted up and be forgiven of my sins. I want that. The Holy Spirit is convicting me. Now's the day of salvation. Today is the acceptable time. Don't wait. Because we've all been bitten We've all been bitten by a fiery serpent. 
And God has provided a remedy, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the bread who comes down out of heaven. If you partake of him, you will never, ever hunger again. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, and we ask for your gracious mercies to be upon us. Strengthen us and keep us this day. Lord, I pray that any who hear this, whether it be right now live or would hear it um, on audio, Lord God, would call upon your name and reach out to you and be saved, for you've turned nobody away. You never turn away the repentant. So I pray that they would call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. We ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. Let's stand and we'll sing our last song.